What does KKK stand for? Good question. KKK stands for crack cocaine. Crack cocaine. Yep. Yeah. This is an incredible audience. But it's not an amazing audience because there's only one person that deserves that adjective of amazing. The fountainhead and founder of the modern skeptical movement. The man that single-handedly debunked the faith healers on The Tonight Show. The man that puts the fear of God into all those psychics. Please help me welcome the amazing Randy! to be, if I can, as sure of the world, the real world around me, as is possible. Now, you can only attain that to a certain degree, but I want the greatest degree of control. I don't, I've never involved myself in narcotics of any kind, I don't smoke, I don't drink, because that can easily just fuzz the edges of my rationality, fuzz the edges of my reasoning powers, and I want to be as aware as I possibly can. That means uh, giving up a lot of uh, fantasies that might be comforting in some ways, but I'm willing to give that up in order to live in an actually real world, as close as I can get to it. During the 1980s, I entered a world that I found filled with fantasy and rife with abuse, the world of faith humor. I developed a special interest in a television evangelist named Peter Popoff. God told me, he said, you smite that cancer with your fist. At the time, Popoff was pulling in nearly $4 million a year healing people on his miracle crusades. You got cancer of the stomach? Are you ready for God to burn that cancer out? Here it goes in the mighty... Devil, back off. Back off, devil! Ooh. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! You really believe you're healed? Yes. Do you think your cancers are gone now? Yes, I believe that because God never lies and we stand in His word. Praise the Lord. I tell you, from now on, you're going to have a soul of victory in your heart. Amen. To his followers, Popoff seemed to have divine powers. As, is it Gould, Alice Gould? He knew their names. Stand up, Alice. As well as the afflictions they'd come to cure. God is touching that thyroid condition right now. God is touching your nerves right now. God is touching your eyes. Just lift up your hands, get ready. Here it comes. He also knew the personal details of their lives. Hear good news from Charles before everything is over. I'll tell you, he's going to be completely delivered because of your prayers, because of your faith. Here it comes, complete healing in Jesus. Ooh, mighty name right now, right now, right now. Amen. It's all right to praise the Lord. I suspected that Papa's revelations were other than divine. 
radio scanner we brought to the hall picked up a decidedly worldly source. Hello, Petey. Can you hear me? If you can't, you're in trouble. Popoff was being prompted by his wife through a wireless earpiece. John? Do you leave Johnson? She'd gotten her information from prayer cards filled out by the faithful before the show began. She's to get rid of the walker. You want to get rid of this walker, sister? Oh, glory. How long have you been walking on that walker? About three years. Three years. She was at 1627 10th Street. 1627 10th Street? Is that right? That's right. She has arthritis all over. Burning this arthritis right out of your body. Take a few steps just to make the devil mad. Hallelujah. That's it. Just move around a little bit. There she goes. Just walk with me. Oh, glory to God. She's not going to need that walker anymore. God's just putting new strength, new health. Burning that arthritis out of her body. Just keep going. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I was able to arrange for another broadcast of the Miracle Crusade on The Tonight Show. But this time, the wireless prompting was included. In 1987, Peter Popoff declared bankruptcy. Greater is he! Greater is he! Now you see, ladies and gentlemen, this is the true nature of what homeopathy is all about. But the bottom line, and the question we have to ask here is, does it work? Well, the test that we did in Clamar... No, it didn't work. It's been that to be repeated many, many times around the world. No, it does not work. And just recently, I put up the million dollars belonging to the James Randi Educational Foundation, about which I will tell you very shortly. Um, I put up the million dollars without the preliminary test with the BBC and the Royal Society in England. And I had their scientists there design me the tests and all they had to do, the homeopaths, the, the British Homeopathic Association, all they had to do was to be able to tell plain water from homeopathic water. And they tried. Oh, they used biological and, and, and uh, spectroscopic tests, everything you can imagine, all kinds of tests. And they came up with the results and they were given to the statistician. And I told them, the Royal Society, I said, when you do the experiment, don't tell me when you're doing it for a strange reason. Because the homeopaths and other psychics, you see, they claim, oh, when James Randi puts up the million dollars, if he knows when the experiment is taking place, he puts out vibrations. <laughs> they don't know vibrations from paprika. They really don't. You could show them a whole basket full of vibrations and they wouldn't know what they look like or what they could do with them. And they love the term quantum. Oh, yes. Well, this is quantum physics, you know. No one understands that. Oh, really? Quantum vibrations are even worse. So, they didn't tell me when they did the experiment. I said, call me only 48 hours after you've done the experiment and put it all in the computer. But I don't want you to score up the results anyway as to whether they were positive or negative. Wait till I get there, over to London. They called me and they said, we've done the experiments. I said, fine, I'm on my way. I'll be there t tomorrow night. 
got on a plane the next day, went over there. They sat me in front of the microphones and the TV cameras at the BBC, and they revealed the results by pecking them up on the, my computer. Boom, there it was. Error bars like this, and all of the data, instead of being within the data, the, the error bars, was way the heck out, jumping up and down. It was a total fiasco, a failure. Immediately, the British Homeopathic Association declared fraud, fake. Yes, oh, it, it had to be because we know homeopathy works. They always do this after they run the test, they approve them, they sit there and they watch the whole thing being done and they say, perfect, it's going to work. It doesn't work? Oh, no, there was something wrong then. Homeopathy is never wrong. It's always the experiment that was wrong. Now, this homeopathy farce is exactly the same kind of wishful thinking that is involved in religious beliefs. Homeopathy does not work. It has been tested, as I said, repeatedly, and has always failed, yet people find it attractive and they buy it. Oh, and in the United States, we have a new twist on it. I bring you this as an example of American progress in swindling. This is called Zycam, very popular in the United States, and it says that it relieves the symptoms of colds and flu. Not the disease itself, but the symptoms. And that would be useful if you have to go to work or you have to go and eat. If you want to take one of these. And it's, it says right on the box, it's homeopathic, you see, so we you know it's powerful. Well, what is in here? I'll read the ingredients to you. Uh, zinc acetate, 1X. Wait a minute. 1X? That's homeopathic talk for one part in 10, or 10%. 10% of every one of these pills is zinc acetate. And zinc acetate is known to be effective against these symptoms. It sometimes leads to loss of the, uh, the use of the taste buds almost permanently, but that's a side effect. Yeah, as long as you get rid of the cold, you know. Now, that is not homeopathic. And yet they label it homeopathic for two very important reasons. First of all, it's much more popular. I'm looking at all these medicines here. Oh, homeopathic, that must be good. That's new, that's new age. Uh, we, we always say, when we say new age, we say newage because it rhymes closer with sewage, you see. But that's, a, that's another point altogether. Now, what happens with these? The second thing, not only is it more popular, it's also 70% more expensive because the US government says, if you call it homeopathic, you can charge 70% more for it. But right on the same shelf are other medicines that don't say homeopathic, and they have exactly the same ingredient in the same proportions. And it works. They both work. But you see, that's one of the problems. When people buy this so-called homeopathic medicine, they try it, and it works. And they say, hey, I tried a homeopathic medicine, and it works. That's a damn lie. That's a complete swindle. But they're doing it. And the government can't do anything about it because of a law that came along before the Federal Drug Administration was registered in the United States and first became active. Homeopathy was already there, and therefore it's grandfathered. That means they can't make any laws in respect to it. Well, I reminded some congressmen in Washington that heroin and opium were along well before that, too. I guess we can just go down to the drugstore and give me a ton of opium, please. Oh, but that's against the law, really. Why don't they do something about this? Because the American government has just failed to do anything like that.
but Nazareth may be overrated as an historical site that proves the inerrancy of the Bible. Author René Somme has written The Myth of Nazareth, The Invented Town of Jesus, a book that effectively demonstrates the controversial archaeology of the town where the Bible has Jesus Christ being born. Of course, the religious faction has reacted furiously to the book, specifically in the Bulletin of the Anglo-Israeli Archaeological Society, B-A-I-A-S, which devotes some 47 pages to five angry rebuttals. There is, we are told, an ambitious commercial enterprise presently under construction in Nazareth to rescue the facts about Jesus' hometown. It's a resort known as Nazareth Village. It is designed to eventually contain streets and several dozen stone houses inhabited by actors and storytellers in authentic garb who will illuminate the life and teachings of Jesus, a notion perhaps inspired by the phenomenal success of Disneyland, where Tinkerbell and Mickey Mouse are seen flitting and strolling about, also in authentic garb. As of ten years ago, an international consortium of Christian groups called the Miracle of Nazareth International Foundation had raised some $60 million for the project, with contributors in the U.S. such as former President Jimmy Carter, Pat Boone, and Reverend Reggie White, formerly a Green Bay Packard football star. Scholars associated with the Nazareth Village Project, Stephen Fan, Yehuda Rapuano, and Ross Voss, none of them archaeologists, now say that evidence has been discovered there for a town that existed at the time of Jesus, a settlement before the First Jewish War that took place in 70 CE. This evidence was simply lying on the open surface of the site, they say. This claim, author Psalm shows, is bogus, and it results from misdating, mislabeling, misinterpreting, and from pure invention. These artifacts and facts were somehow missed by the previous crowds of professional archaeologists who have been digging on that site for the last century. The Nazareth Village Resort lies on a 15-acre plot of land called the Nazareth Village Farm, the NVF. The scholars under discussion surveyed the farm, dug on it, and published a lengthy report in the 2007 issue of the BAIAS Journal. There is little difficulty to show that there evidence for a town there 11 small pieces of pottery shards actually dates as late as the 2nd century CE, and Psalm's research shows that the rest of the material from the Nazareth site dates well after the time of Jesus Christ. There simply is no demonstrable evidence from the Nazareth site that dates to the time of Jesus Christ and to Hellenistic times. In fact, one awkward fact after the other stands in the way of such a claim. For example, the Church of the Annunciation at Nazareth, the largest Christian structure in the Middle East, is a primary destination of Christian pilgrims to the Holy Land, of course. It is there that the faithful believe Mary received the Annunciation from the Archangel Gabriel at her home, but the existence of a number of tombs directly under the structure, firmly established by archaeologists, is just impossible, since, for the faithful, Tombs have no place under such a structure. According to Jewish religious law, Jews cannot live in the vicinity of tombs, which are a prime source of ritual impurity. So the ancient commentary on Jewish law mandates that tombs must be located 
outside of the village proper. Thus, tombs under the house of Mary are denied by the tradition. These post-Iron Age tombs are also post-Jesus, Middle Roman and later, and the wealth of pottery found in them is also later. Consider, continuing pilgrimage to Nazareth, which fortifies the convictions of the true believer while supporting the community financially, depends on the sanctity and the reputation of the site. As author Psalm points out, perhaps the entire Jesus story depends on it, too. He also tells us not to be too surprised if remarkable finds at Nazareth conveniently appear in the next few years, finds that substantiate a settlement there at the time of Christ. To fit the demands of the Christian tradition, the upcoming material will have to be early and non-funereal. And just recently, as if Psalm himself had prophetic powers, the NVF now reports that a cache of Hellenistic and early Roman coins has recently been found at Mary's well at the northern end of the Nazareth Basin. But strangely, nothing even remotely similar had ever been found there before in the entire century of professional digging about. A cache of Hellenistic and early Roman coins, a bonanza for any archaeologist, is exactly the sort of evidence which the believers need in order to decide the matter in their favor. But the earliest coin found there dates to about 350 CE. In fact, a 2006 report from the Israeli Antiquities Authority, signed by the archaeologist who dug at the Mary's Well site, mentions no early coins at all, when coins found in wells are very frequent discoveries. The only datable coins she found there were from the 14th and 15th centuries after Jesus. The facts are that no demonstrable evidence dating either to the time of Jesus or to earlier Hellenistic times has been found at Nazareth. It is a late Roman Byzantine village, not a mythical settlement at the turn of the era. As author Psalm says, that question has already been answered and answered convincingly. Here we have a parallel with the situation re-evidenced for the parapsychological miracles. For generations, the believers who support the Nazareth myth have been defending their case by demanding, prove me wrong. When empiricists come up with the required facts, they discover that the facts don't seem to matter to those people. They also know that there's no way to disprove the myth. Psalm notes, as I have, that no one can prove that Santa Claus doesn't exist, for example. We can go to the North Pole, we can dig up there all we want, and we can find absolutely no evidence for his gift manufacturing facility nor for his team of flying reindeer. All the believer has to say under those circumstances is, well, you just didn't look in the right places, or he's hiding, or even he's invisible. Ooh. Measuring chimneys, tracing gifts back to the factories in China where they were made, and discovering that the serial numbers on watches were stamped there in a little Swiss town, those things prove nothing to the true believer. The mythology of Jesus is every bit as weird. I'm an atheist of the second kind. I want to make that clear. And I want to tell you what I mean by that. Webster's Dictionary has two definitions, the edition that I have, two definitions of atheist. The first one is one who denies the existence of a deity. Second one is one who denies there is enough evidence for a deity to be convincing. I'm one of the second kind because I cannot prove a negative. 
I can't prove that there are no orange storks or unicorns in South Africa, for example. I don't have the means to do it, and I can't do it anyway. I'd have to spend the rest of, of eternity searching all of South Africa to see if there was one there. You cannot prove negatives of that kind. I just wanted to, to make that clear in, in passing. And what were you at, young lady? I'm well, sorry. Well, b before we move on to the question, Randy, uh, elaborate on that point, because I think some people, if they haven't misunderstood your position, at least uh, I wonder if you're not being mischaracterized when people say, oh, Randy believes that you should not uh, be a skeptic of God uh, if there's no evidence one way or the other. Well, again, it, depend, it depends on your definition of God, too. God can do A. He can do a certain task. He can cause something to happen if he wills it, he or she or it or whatever, wills it. And uh, if they say that, I say, how can we test it? If you can devise a test for that, like prayer or some such thing, fine. Now, I'll, I'll give you, in passing, my, uh, my cardiac surgeon's um, comment on one of my latest visits to him. I did have a double bypass, and that's an experience that sticks in your memory, I can assure you, uh, to say the least. And uh, he said to me, and casually while we're, we're talking, he said, by the way, I guess at your business you get a lot of inquiries about this intelligent design question. I said, oh, do I ever? He said, well, face them up with this. Your cardiac surgeon told you that he went into your left leg opened it up, took out some veins, a couple of redundant veins in your leg that you don't really need at all. You don't use them. They're redundant. And he opened up your chest, and I don't want to get into all the details of that. I wasn't awake for it anyway, so I can't really uh, aver to it. But he replaced a couple of, uh, of, of arteries actually going into your heart very important ones. You need them, and they weren't working. They were clogged up. So I snipped them out and I put in the veins from your leg. Now the leg doesn't suffer from that at all. I have no problem with the leg. He said, you won't have any problem because the veins are redundant. But in the human heart, there is not one scrap of tissue there that is redundant at all. If any scrap of tissue in the human heart fails, you die. And he added, of course, unless I'm there to save you, you see. He was trying to <laughs> keep me on the schedule. But, that that is absolutely true. There is nothing redundant about the human heart. And he went on to say there are some rather primitive forms of life that have and had in the past two hearts, as if one was redundant. Just in case one should fail, you'll go ahead. Now, is this intelligent design? No, not really. Not in human beings, anyway. Maybe we're the only species that's not intelligently designed. I asked them to think about that. Among the reasons that I heard for people wanting to vote for Brexit were, well, it's nice to have a change, and, well, I preferred the old blue passport to the European purple passport. These are the kinds of reasons people were giving for voting for Brexit. The, the day after the referendum, the most Googled question in Britain was, what is the European Union? 
During the Brexit campaign, uh, one of the leading politicians favoring Brexit, Michael Gove, said to the British people, you are the experts. You don't trust experts. You are the experts now. So ordinary people who have absolutely no, no knowledge of economics or politics or history decided on a 50% majority to vote Britain out of the European market, which was a, a, out of the European community, which was a very, very complicated, detailed, ramified structure that had been built up over decades. And so at one stroke, the, the British people who had no knowledge, no expertise, uh, were allowed, were given the opportunity by a reckless David Cameron to vote us out, and they did, by a very narrow margin. This cult of everybody being an expert, all opinions being equally valid, is, I think, dangerous and most unfortunate. And of course, I have been accused of being an elitist because of this. And yes, I mean, uh, when you're about to have an operation, you want an elite surgeon to, do the, to cut you open. You want an elite anaesthetist to put you under. When you're about to fly, you want an elite pilot to fly you. When you're about to leave a federation of states which has been built up over decades, you want an elite economist or pol politician or historian to uh, advise you on it. You don't want to take the, the, the view of just any old man in the street or woman in the street. I pronounced myself profoundly ill-equipped to vote on the referendum about Brexit. I was ill-equipped, so were the vast majority of the British people ill-equipped. In that sense, I think that elitist should stop being a dirty word and we should start to respect elites in whatever field we're talking about. We want elite musicians to play in our orchestras, etc. I think it's bad enough to ask non-experts like me to, to, to vote in direct referendums when, all, when we are also being fed false information, more or less deliberately false information. I mean, in, in, uh, the, the, the Trump administration is actually lying every day and, and, and more or less proud of it. Um, in Britain, the Brexit campaign had a bus, you may have read about this, it had a bus which had a great big slogan on the, on the side which said that every day, or every, every week I think it was, some gigantic sum was being paid to the, to the European Union which um, would be, if, if we left the, if we left Europe, would, would be available for the national health. Now, that was an admitted lie. That was simp quite simply false. And many people were probably swayed by that consideration to vote to leave the European Union. Um, so, no, I, I, do, I do think we need to stick to democracy as it is. But I think it's a representative democracy that we have. In Britain, we have a parliamentary democracy where we don't actually vote. Normally, we don't vote on actual issues. We vote members of parliament. Members of parliament then go to the House of Commons and then they vote on our behalf. And we have cabinet government where the cabinet gets advice from civil servants who are expert. So no, I'm, I'm not advocating that uh, you know, people with PhDs should get two votes or anything like, like that. I, mean, I don't want it to be elitist to quite that extent. So let's go for representative democracy, but not referendum democracy. I, mean, I think it's worth adding that uh, the, the precedent for not everybody having the same vote, the same weighted vote, is already 
well established in the United States when you think about voting for the United States Senate, where every state gets two senators. What that means is that a citizen of Wyoming has, I think, equivalent of 60 votes compared to a citizen of California. Because if you look at the, at the actual relative population sizes of Wyoming and California. So, in a way, that pass has already been sold, and that we already um, see uh, gross inequalities, I mean, 60-fold inequalities in the, in the weight. And the Senate, of course, is very important, because the Senate does um, not only take hugely important decisions, but also ratifies presidential nominees for the Supreme Court, and that could be the most important single thing that a president ever does, is appoint members to the Supreme Court, because they go on and on for decades, in, in some cases, after the president has gone. Uh, the theme was ingenious and uh, thought-provoking, and uh, I like that term, paranormal. Did you invent that, that term? Well, as I said, I, I hope I did, but um, somebody's going to Google it and, and discover. And I, I wrote a column in Free Inquiry called Atheist for Jesus, which I thought I'd invented. Um, <laughs> but only to discover, somebody immediately told me that it was already out on, on the web. Um, it, it's an old term, apparently. Well, um, I, uh, you know, I must say, I have um, many times uh, had to bring up in, in my lectures, the, when people ask me, why don't you investigate this? Uh, you brought it up very well here. You suggested that we demonstrate statistically that telepathy, for example, is a fact before we get involved in discussing how it works. The uh, Duke University tests back in the 30s and such more or less assumed that it was there and uh, they wanted to find a mechanism for it. Uh, when I say assumed, they assumed that after they had done some tests that we later know by closer examination, particularly the evidence presented by some 16 millimeter film that showed that they were miscounting uh, dice and misidentifying them, uh, perhaps not purposely, I think uh, quite inadvertently in most cases. But uh, that is something we should all bear in mind that finding out whether there is a phenomenon to examine, that is the first step. Uh, let's not start spinning our wheels, um, looking into the theories behind things that have not yet been established. Um, theories on homeopathy, for example. Endless literature out there on how homeopathy works, they're finding out whether or not it works in the first place. Yeah. That's, that's a waste of resources, yes, don't you is. think? It is. Moreover, I think in the stage one, when you're doing your statistical test to discover whether there is a phenomenon there, worth investigating. Um, it has to be a robust phenomenon. I mean, some of the uh, alleged uh, statistical demonstrations are terribly elusive, evasive almost. I mean, they, um, you get, sometimes the effect is there, sometimes it isn't, sometimes it seems to depend on the weather, and sometimes it depends on whether there are any skeptics present, and, and um, it's, um, true, true. I think it, 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 in order to be, to be worthy of moving on to stage two, if it's inherently implausible, as these things of course are, then it must be a proper robust phenomenon which stands up to repeated experimental test, and even the I mean, th those cases in the 30s, when you said the, the J.B. Ryan group 
thought they had a phenomenon worth, worth testing, they had enormous numbers. Hmm. You, you expect to get a suggestion of statistical significance if your numbers are that, are that great. A really robust phenomenon should show up reliably and repeatedly. Indeed. Well, uh, I must tell you that in, uh, in establishing the, the ways that the James Randi Educational Foundation tests claims, um, we, we take every precaution to be sure that the, what you mentioned there, the presence of skeptics doesn't interfere with it. Because we know that's a deadly force uh, to these paranormal events. And uh, I have always insisted that it be done when I don't even know about it, because they say that it works over through time and space that has no reference to it whatsoever and no effect on it, uh, that if I even know that the test is taking place, then I can use my absent vibrations to, to doom the, the results. Uh, so what we did uh, in, in many cases with the homeopathic tests that were done for the BBC that uh, got such uh, attention. What was not mentioned there was the fact that I approved the protocol, that is, I, I I, passed, I gave them my opinion on the protocol and uh, I saw no faults with it whatsoever and I told them yes, go ahead and do it this way and that I would uh, risk the reputation of the JREF on the results of it and that it would be eligible for the million dollar prize. But then I cautioned them, I want you to do it entirely and I do not want you to inform me when it's taking place. Only call me not closer than a week after everything has taken place so that you can say to me what the results were if you choose to and they didn't they waited till I got to England to cause a little bit of trepidation oh I was frightened in the plane home I wonder will I have lost a million dollars but I took that precaution you see that was not mentioned yeah. they didn't think it was too could, important. Could I ask you a, a, a question about, about, um, about the million dollar prize um, I would be worried if I were you because because of the, of the fact that we have perinormal possibilities. Yes. I mean, um, what if uh, somebody, what if there really is a perinormal phenomenon which is going to be embraced within science and will, and will become normal, but at present is classified conventionally mm -hmm. as paranormal, and so that's, that's waiting to be demonstrated, and if it, 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 it will be demonstrated if, if there really is a paranormal phenomenon there. Um, I mean, you, you shouldn't have to pay out for that because it becomes physics, but I, I, I wonder how you define that which you're prepared to pay out for. Well, first of all, I'll say that if we had to pay out the million dollars, I'd happily do it. We would have discovered something wonderful and new, and it would be worth a million dollars to have that phenomenon itself. Now, I, when they ask me, what do you mean by paranormal, I refer them to the dictionary. Now, as we all know, dictionaries don't define words, but they do give common usage or current usage, most popular usage, and uh, we're subject to that. Uh, defining words is, uh, is a rather risky process because they, they will change uh, during usage uh, internationally, uh, on an international basis, certainly. Now, uh, I just say something which flies in the face of all established science, law of inverse squares, and a few other well-established um, facts of life like that, that we're relatively certain of. And I say relatively all the time, I'm, I'm being cautious. Uh, if you can prove that that phenomenon 
and I examine it first, and it usually falls into into well-established. Just to, to break away for a second, when I went to Korea a few years ago, the Koreans told me, "Oh, Mr. Randy, in Korea we have phenomena that you've never even dreamed of." When I got there, most of them were in books like in the 1600s. Yeah in England and such. There is nothing new in this field. It just takes a different costume, a different flavor, a different language perhaps to express it. But they, they said I was going to find brand new things. It usually falls, Richard, into such classifications, such easy classifications that we've seen many, many times over and over, that it gives me a certain amount of encouragement that this is not going to be a paranormal yeah. uh, event. But we are in Las Vegas, after all, so we do take a certain chance. Um, but what about, I mean, a 19th century James Randi might well have had to pay out a million dollars when radio was invented. I mean, Lord Kelvin, as I, as I quoted, yes. uh, said that um, radio, what do you say, radio is impossible. X-rays will prove to be a hoax. Um, well, uh, I mean, could could Kelvin have fallen foul of, of what I'm what worried that you might fall foul? Well, you see, I don't understand Kelvin's statement at all because they had been demonstrated by that point. Yes, I agree about that. Okay, then a pre-Kelvin. Pre I mean, could a could an 18th-century James Randi have had to pay out um, the equivalent of a million dollars um, for um, if somebody had come up with radio way way ahead of its time? Good question, and uh, possibly the answer might possibly be yes. But I think we're at a stage, uh, this has been said for centuries, of course, we're at a stage now that we know everything. There's hardly anything else to, to investigate. Who was the, the man who said uh, that science should stop right now because we are, it wasn't Kelvin, was it? Was it? Ah, the voice of wisdom from the small table over here, yes, indeed. Thank you, Michael. Um, I don't really think that we've made a scratch, the tiniest scratch, in, in what we have to know. I, I get these comments all the time from people saying, well, science doesn't know anything, does it? And I said, that's right. Science doesn't know anything, absolutely. What it does is it expresses statements about the universe that are observed, presents the evidence and says, this conclusion is very likely to be true, very, very likely to be true, but you look into it and see if you can find an exception, in which case, S equals UT plus half AT squared is what I use all the time.
gathered in their masses Just like witches at black masses Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Oh, larger! world stops turning ashes where the body's burning no more war pigs of the power and as God has struck the hour they are 
of judgment God is calling Underneath the war pigs crawling Begging mercies for the sin Satan laughing spreads his wings Oh Lord, yeah. Everybody, this is Z. Thanks for stopping by. If you'd like to train in the world's greatest kung fu, stop on over at www.sifuz.com. If you'd like to hear original music written and recorded by yours truly, check out soundcloud.com/musicfordogs. 
course, you can always find us over here at anchor.fm slash integrity. And also over at twitter.com slash sifu underscore z. And of course, I'd like to thank all of our contributors over at patreon.com slash the art of integrity. Stay tuned for more Integrity Radio.